Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome, everybody, to this week's podcast episode for the Financial Freedom for Physicians podcast. And I'm your host, Dr. Christopher Liu. And as you know, we talk about four different types of freedom, finances, time, location, and health freedom. And I'm always looking for entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs that are changing the world, startups, doing fascinating things to inspire, motivate, educate you on your path towards freedom. So today is all going to be about finance. And we have Ivan Zhang. He's based out of New York City. And he's the CEO of Pennyworks. And he was a former quant portfolio manager. So today's going to be talking all about uh, finance, uh, on the cutting edge of finance, DeFi, crypto, blockchain. I know these topics are kind of unpopular out of vogue during the downturn or recession, but we're going to talk about why you should consider it uh, moving forward. So Ivan, welcome. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Super happy to be here. Yeah, I know you. You're you know you're a busy person, and you know you have your company. And thanks so much for taking the time out. So tell us more about your background, your journey. It looks like you went the traditional and you went into the entrepreneurial route. So tell us more about that. Yeah, sure. So we, I mean, I started off as a very traditional kind of uh, career path. Uh, went to do schooling, with my uh, complete my master's, and then eventually went into finance sector. And I would gotta say it wasn't a great time. So when I first joined uh, the workforce, I was trying to look for for jobs. This was in uh, December or actually October of 2008. So you're talking about the recession we're having now, but there was a much bigger one uh, or potentially bigger one uh, in 2008 that we were facing. It was like, hey, look, the Dow, the S&P is like going down by 800 points a day. Like, what's the point? We won't have a stock market by the time we graduate. So, you know, luckily that didn't happen. And so, I graduated, went to finance. There's some interesting roles. Uh, some of them were related to the product that uh, we're doing now at Pennyworks. But uh, eventually, it was a fixed income portfolio management role at Bank of America, where I stayed for the better part of uh, about 10 years. And that role is interesting because it is not a client-facing role, even though it is a very important one. It's the one where we're managing the bank's own balance sheet. And so that is a situation where when you take funds and you put in the bank and then you go and loan them out to make money, sometimes they don't find great opportunities, right? And so it's like, well, that's a problem, right? That's a weird problem to have, to have too much money that you don't know what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's actually, it's a quite common one, especially since the financial crisis. Part of it is because of uh, monetary policy and also some of the financial plumbing and regulations that's required. But the situation was that banks were saddled, so to speak, with excess capital that they didn't know how to deploy. And then there was this group that was responsible for generating income out of it. And that was our group. So our boss was the chief investment officer. 
And the main purview was to make sure that those assets and the deposits that were utilized. And we mostly invested in uh, U.S. Treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, but it was a it was a very large pool of money. It was like about four to five hundred billion dollars back then. Uh, and then now, I think the current group manages something well over that, you know. Um, and part of it is just uh, seeing kind of where. Uh, the kind of money center banks or the masters of the universe, so to speak, were operating, how they were doing things. And it was actually an eye-opener, right? They used chat, they used phone. <laughs> I would have imagined it would be a lot more sophisticated, but that's, that's how business is done, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's like kind of how I started on a career. And uh, crypto came about in 2013. So I don't know exactly when you discovered it, but I think at the time, I think, a lot of people that um, uh, first discover it have two two typical reactions, right? One is, I have no idea what this is, <laughs> right? Uh, another one uh, for those that are in, in finance or can see kind of some kind of the, the linkages between technology and finance, it's a kind of appealing prospect, right? Uh, because the analogy is internet it moves information, right? And then the idea is that... Uh, Blockchain is essentially the analogous internet for money. So that has huge practical implications because then you can build tools that can directly operate on money. And typically that was a domain that was explicitly reserved for banking institutions, right? Payment processors and so forth. So it has a huge opportunity to democratize finance in a way that uh, people were just not accustomed to before. Yeah. Um, but it was nascent, right? In 2013, there was like nothing around. So uh, you had to wait for the development of some of these financial applications. And that essentially came with the advent of Ethereum blockchain, which is what created the concept of smart contracts, which means that, hey, look, you have regular code that it operates on, but because the ledger is immutable, means that you can have proper accounting that essentially would be a basis for trust to have financial flows, right? And the key property here is that they've been able to create digital scarcity. Digital scarcity is the property that actually you lose from the creation of the internet, right? So it's like, I have a CD, I have a music, MP3, like when it first came out, people are like, oh, okay, let me send it over. But you're not really sending it over because you still have a copy of it at the end, right? And it creates a lot of headaches for people that are used to the physical world. There's some tons of benefits because the marginal cost of sending something is zero. Uh, but it also creates difficulties because the way people value goods a lot of it is because of the relative scarcity of the item. And the moment you turn it into digital, it becomes essentially difficult to enforce. Uh, so a challenge, for example, would be digital artists, right? You have regular artists, like, okay, I get it. You spent time, you, you drew it, and now you have a nice painting. I can sell it, I can touch it, I can feel it. But let's say I did the same effort, but I did it with uh, you know, a digital pen and I did use Photoshop and all that stuff. All of a sudden, I'm not able to sell my art because the moment I sell it, what is it going to do? Just right click and save, copy and paste it, and, and then I don't have the art anymore, right? Or he has another copy that's just as good as mine. Um, so actually, the blockchain technology really just brings back an original feature about physicality that wasn't in the digital universe. And that allows you to basically have a store of value and some of the other concepts that uh, blockchain can talk um, so, you know, having been dabbling in those two fields, we eventually found uh, decentralized finance, which was the concept that, hey, look, we could just have some of these marketplaces, including exchanges, 
uh, lending, and all the other financial constructs straight on the blockchain. And the nice thing is that everybody can access it. You don't need to be a broker dealer. You don't need to be a registered financial advisor. You don't need to have a particular uh, um, accreditation uh, or a third party that will say, hey, look, now you're allowed to do something, right? And the permissionless nature is basically about freedom, right? Which is kind of what you're focusing on in this podcast. Financial freedom means you're allowed to do financial activities without any third party's permission. And so when we saw the uh, connection of this technology as well as the financial sector uh, into something that essentially was our, our whole background in the last couple of decades, uh, we just had to jump in and say, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna try to bring that value to uh, everybody and see how broadly we can disseminate the values that blockchain technology can bring to finance. Yeah, it's quite interesting because uh, you see the progress and the evolution since 2012, and uh, like I got in from in 2012, um, and uh, you know you've seen it from you know wild speculation manias, you know, the scams and hacks, and uh, but it's like you know like I said, your the field is continually. Um, moving and you know innovating and you know you, of course you have the bad actors and the scammers but but uh it's tr- purely innovation so um what's interesting is uh you you've seen for example you mentioned digital art and now these nfts are moving from just um profile pictures into you know ticketing and you know now these are membership clubs and so what industries do you see being disrupted by blockchain and web3 uh i mean the applications are so huge uh so there's two ways to think about it one is uh, how easy it is for an application to be disrupted by web3 versus how likely it is to be disrupted right uh, so the irony here is an example traditional financial services uh, it's actually fairly easy to disrupt them with blockchain technology, like for example, if you want to create an exchange that trades all of the uh, existing US stocks, you could do that and it wouldn't take that many lines of code, right? Because what you need to do is have a price feed for this price, uh, for whatever stock. And then you have an exchange which just enforces, hey, look, whatever you buy, you, you make money when the price goes up, whenever you sell, you lose money when the price goes up, right? And then you can create essentially a synthetic securities exchange, right? But it's not the limitation of the technology, it's the fact that you can't arbitrarily just do that without <laughs> violating some securities laws in the United States because securities exchanges are highly regulated entities, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the dis- discrepancy that we're facing now, especially in the financial sector, is that it's actually not hard to displace uh, in terms of technology or in terms of the efficiency or the operational excellence, but it is hard to displace the entrenched laws that were set up. Partly because they were set up to protect users simply because without this technology, the best alternative was all this regulation, testing, licensing, compliance to make sure that people were doing the right thing. Yeah. Which you just don't have a, a lot of the stuff, you just don't have a need to because like, for example, an escrow account or some of these other concepts, these are all legal constructs, right? Whereas uh, you could implement some of these uh, in the blockchain fairly straightforward as just a little label with a number around it, right? Um, so that's one field that has this weird discrepancy where it's very hard to displace, but very easy in terms of the technology. Um, but there's also other fields that are kind of maybe a little bit backwards. Um, so for example, uh, gains, right? 
and not even just games, but games, uh, you know, for example, the people used to play Counter-Strike. This was a pretty popular one. And uh, Counter-Strike is basically a, a first person shooter. So you go around with a gun and shoot people. And one thing that they came out with was an innovation is that, hey, look, now you can have customized decals on your gun. So your gun can look like a duck, but it shoots bullets, right? And had no value in terms of what you could do with the game. It doesn't give you extra boost, but like, hey, look, I have this very rare uh, decal or skin, right? And that essentially was the first example of a not entirely decentralized, but non-fungible token, but with a traditional video game, right? Uh, okay, so now you have this and people are paying a lot of money for it. But there's also all these other games where there's a legit economics uh, backing it. So for example, World of Warcraft, which is basically an entire alternate universe, right? Like a fantasy. There's also equivalent ones in the sci-fi space where people have news where, hey, look, there was a huge battle that went on on the server and thousands of players went to fight each other and they lost millions of dollars because these are like carriers or fancy ships that they spend millions of dollars of real dollars to build. And after they blow up, obviously they're not worth anything, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, so, but the thing about that is you get invested into the game, but what if the developer just shuts the game down? They say, hey, look, we're just not enough users playing it, so we're gonna shut it down because it's not worth it for us to run the server anymore. But for you, it's something that you built your life on, right? Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to persist those assets or persist like your investment of time across to another game? Maybe it's, hey, look, now we're just going to take those assets and move it to some other theme, right? Instead of playing this like space shooter, we're going to play this like space trading game. So that's the opportunity that Gamify has in terms of being able to say, hey, look, the assets belong to you, right? The economic activity resides with you and the person that you're doing the trade for. We're just there to develop the game on top of it, which is like the activity they're doing, the theme, the focus, the quest or whatnot, right? And that actually gives you more freedom, right? That's like, it gives you more agency over those assets. So that you're not locked into a particular vendor or whatever their kind of economic, in-game economic policies are at the time, because maybe they need to drum up sales or something like that, right? Uh, and so that one is actually a fairly complex one because there's tons of different interactions. How many goods are there in like a regular role-playing game? There's like hundreds or thousands of these, right? And the irony is here is they're not individually very economically valuable. They may be worth like five cents or 10 cents or something like that. But over the course of an hour, you might be accumulating 50 or hundreds of these things. And there's thousands of people playing. You want them to be able to scale very, very large, right? And so that becomes a technological challenge. The modern blockchains, they are struggling to fulfill that use case. So it is technologically difficult, but you can see it literally uh, just like, you know, logically speaking, it's already happening. They're just not NFTs yet. Being NFTs just simply brings you that agency so that you can then port it over to other platforms, give you more game financial freedom, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, what you're describing is uh, self-sovereign. So you're owning everything and you control everything and um you know it's you just you go to these platforms but they don't own you and you know right now facebook and or meta and uh, google all of these control everything so you know they own all your data so you have to abide by the rules youtube they, they can shut down your accounts so uh you know which is interesting because this whole decentralized everybody's going to be their own um, they're going to own their own IP. Uh, everybody's going to have a direct connection to their fans, um, which is going to be really great for creators and entrepreneurs. Um, 
the next you mentioned something which was really interesting because I know you have previous ex experience in finance and um, you know you talk about you mentioned DeFi so mm -hmm. you know the audience really you know audience really when you talk about the they don't really understand it but just brief general what is DeFi how does it work and what sort of investment opportunities are there Great. So, so DeFi is essentially all of the financial construct that I mentioned that you can you can use without any permission from like a real brokerage account, right? So, at the beginning, maybe in late two thousand eighteen or nineteen, the first DeFi constructs were uh, collateralized lending. So, how that works is that hey, look, let's say you have some crypto. Uh, so, uh, we'll just use Ethereum for example. You have a hundred dollars of Ethereum. Uh, but you want to use that to uh, access some funding to do something else, right? So maybe not a hundred. Let's say you have hundred thousand dollars of Ethereum because you need to buy a Lamborghini or something like that, right? So you would like to pledge your your assets to then do something with it uh, while still holding that exposure, and that's a very common uh, operation that banks do, right? So they have repo, they have stock margin lending, all those things are essentially that where you have a dead asset that's locked in, right? Or even the most analogous one for, for traditional finances, like a home equity line of credit, right? Your home is sitting there, it's worth something, right? If you pay it off in full, and let's say the house is worth 100,000, then the money is just stuck there. But you could say, hey, look, I'm just gonna take a home uh, equity line of credit so that I can just buy a car, right? Now people are pretty comfortable with that concept because they know that like the home is worth something. And so at some point, if the guy doesn't pay you the loan, you just take over the house, you sell it and you get your money back, right? as long as you don't lend too much relative to the value of the assets. So that is the first DeFi construct, which is collateralized lending. And that's what we uh, at Pennyworks focus on. Part of the reason, because when you have a collateralized lending on the blockchain, there's some something special that happens. When you borrow against the house, and let's say the guy doesn't pay, you have to get the house. And that takes a lot of effort, right? And not just like time, but also money. And, and, and uh, it's also a process that's uh, difficult to do across your jurisdictions. Whereas when you have DeFi lending, the assets are on the blockchain, the exchanges are also on the blockchain, which means that you can actually call the collateral back and liquidate in real time, which reduces operational risk, reduces counterparty credit risk, which is kind of what you're doing when you're uh, borrowing against an asset, which actually makes the whole system safer. And this is actually, if you compare that to the closest analog in traditional finance, stock margin lending, where somebody like a big financial firm is borrowing against their portfolio stock. The problem with that is stocks are not really traded 24-7. You can't really liquidate anything on Saturday, right? You can get Jerome Powell and like Janet Yellen and the CEO of Goldman Sachs in a room, and they wouldn't be able to liquidate stock on a Saturday. It just, there's nothing they can do. It's institutionalized, right? Okay. Uh, whereas in the blockchain, because they trade 24-7, uh, the, all the markets are on the same place, you can have atomic transactions. Atomic meaning that uh, all of the necessary steps happen at the same time. And that's very important because if you were at a closing for a house, Right, and you have your real estate lawyer A, real estate lawyer B, so on and so forth, and all the documents are signed, everybody's happy, and they're walking out of the room, and then like somebody gets hit by a car, right? It's terrible. Uh, like, do you have the house? It's unclear. Depends on what happens, right? 
And so the reason for that is because it's not atomic, right? You have all these papers, all the things are pending, but none of the, these things are finalized or settled. So blockchain doesn't have that. If you trade it, it's settled, it's done. And that actually dramatically reduces the risk of all the people involved. So that's the opportunity uh, in DeFi. Now, there are additional advanced uh, strategies that people now have. So that what I mentioned was the exchanges are also on the blockchain, which means that you can trade one asset against another. And you can also make money by being an exchange market participant. And then those things are called um, automated market making, so AMMs. And uh, that is a little bit advanced. It's essentially being, uh, you are essentially taking the place of a traditional investment bank that would have served as a market maker. Again, that goes back to the theme where you have the freedom to do that. Before you had to be a broker dealer, before you have to have these licenses, before you have to have a captive audience. Now, anybody that wants to participate can place some funds into these automated market making uh, contracts and you'll be able to generate some revenue out of that. Now, obviously it's not risk-free, so definitely you need to understand the risk, but the appeal is that you now have access, which you didn't have before. Uh, so that's kind of the budding world of decentralized finance. And as time goes over, you can imagine there's more and more financial products that are gonna be built including term deposits. So you're borrowing for a fixed amount of time or including some volatility trading marketplaces and so on and so forth. But the irony here is that you're not disrupting or kind of um, replacing jobs that are at the low end of the value scale. You are uh, disrupting the core of uh, investment banking, right? And the core value propositions that these large institutions have. And so that's kind of essentially what the opportunity is. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I haven't walked into a bank, you know, usually it's, everything is mobile or digital. And, you know, if you have to go to, you know, go through the ATM. Uh, so, you know, banks are closing and especially after 2008, people just stopped trusting them. And, you know, and slowly you have, you have a lot of DeFi startups. And there was an article I read where, you know, a lot of these DeFi startups, you know, all the capital is going to them. And so they're basically taking away from all the banks. So, you know, it's it's kind of like a, the dying, in, it's the, the banks that will survive are probably the big ones or the ones that will innovate, you know, the Goldman's and all of these. But, uh, you know, in general, it's, you know, the banking industry has to change and pivot as well. So, uh, yeah. what's in, yeah, this is a really fascinating I know a lot of people are interested in um, visiting your website, you know, contacting you, following you. Uh, how can they do that? Uh, pretty straightforward. Pennyworks.com is our uh, site. We're on LinkedIn as well. If you search for the Pennyworks company page as well as Twitter. Uh, I'm also on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn myself. Pretty easily reachable if you just search for me. I'm not hiding. Uh, this is not an anonymous project. We're here <laughs> to stay. Uh, and we're just trying to bring the benefits of DeFi to the broader public, right? And uh, one interesting aspect is what we're doing, you can do yourself. So we're not saying, hey, look, this is a special sauce or something that uh, only we have the experience of. We're just saying, hey, look, the more people that we can onboard onto the blockchain, the more benefits for the broader economy. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, great to meet and connect entrepreneurs that you know really that that are in it for the long run and really in it for you know to change the world not to make a quick buck or to scam people and um so you know it's great to, to talk to individuals such as yourself so um thanks so much and um uh, 
we look forward to hearing about your future success. Really appreciate it, Chris. Thanks a bunch.